Pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come to open up your word, I pray that you would help us. Uh, We can be dull of hearing, Uh, can be sluggish in our listening, Uh, not simply uh, with our physical ears, but Father, most especially with our hearts that we have a tendency to not want to do what you tell us to do, and to trust you, to believe you. So, Father, I would pray that you would overcome all of that unbelief, all of that resistance to your word this morning, and that we would hear it and that we would follow it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 5. Hebrews in chapter 5, I want to read, uh, beginning with verse 11 through chapter 6 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, please. Hear the word of God. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. We're about to enter into uh, perhaps one of the most difficult passages, at least in this message of Hebrews this week and next. And so... I simply want to urge us to be humble. The Apostle James tells us that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And this is one of those times, most especially, that we're to do that. And while we understand those words of James in a very general way, yes, we should talk, we should listen to each other and and so forth, and we should be um, slow to speak and most especially slow to become angry, he's applying that, I won't read that passage out of James 1 for you, but he's applying that to hearing from God. We have a tendency to be pretty talky even when God speaks. And we have a tendency even to get angry at him because he happens to hit areas in our lives we don't like hit. And so uh, James tells us that when God speaks, let's listen. And we should listen with humility. Uh, There will be things in these passages that will strike us that we think should apply to someone else. And yet it's no doubt God speaking to us in various ways. So in humility, let's be quick to listen and let's be quick to apply it in the context of our own lives. And for those who may disagree with us here and there, let's let that be. But let's consider what God has to say. And as we enter into the passage that I just read, it's really a parenthesis. Uh, if you'll notice in chapter 5 and verse 10, well, verses 9 and 10, which I didn't read, which we discussed at least some last Sunday, he writes, And being made perfect, he became the eternal source of salvation, speaking of Jesus, of course, to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest 
after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 11 he says, about this we have much to say and it's hard to explain. Now, what he's saying is, what I really want to tell you about right now is how it is that Jesus and Melchizedek are related. He won't get to that until chapter 7. He begins talking again about this in chapter 7. But now, he's laying out this warning to them. He's saying, I want to talk to you about this because it's very important. It's very important how Jesus and Melchizedek fit together this strange character out of the Old Testament, Melchizedek. Because you see, the theme of the author of Hebrews is to present for us that Christ is superior. He begins by saying that he's superior to the prophets, that in in the former days God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now he speaks to us uh, by way of his Son, by way of the Lord Jesus. And that's better. He says that he's better than the angels. He's inherited a name that's above their name. He's greater than the angels. They were messengers. But Jesus, you see, is in fact the message. He says he's greater than Moses. While Moses was a servant in the house of God, Jesus is a son over the house of God. And so he wants us to see that. But not only that, as Jesus is presented to us as as high priest, he's saying he's better than the priesthood of Aaron. In fact, a question can be raised. How is it that Jesus can really be our high priest? Because he wasn't of the family of Aaron. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. And that's where this character Melchizedek comes into play. And that opens the door for us then to see Jesus as our high priest, the one who brings and fulfills and guarantees and mediates and oversees a better covenant. That's all to come. He says, I really want to tell you that because that's really going to be helpful for your spiritual life. But I can't. And you get the impression that these people who are reading this for the first time, us, if we come to that point, would say, no, 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 you have to. This is about, you say, our eternal salvation. How could you keep anything from us that, 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 that talks to us about our eternal salvation? It would be like going to your doctor and he's saying, I would like to tell you how to cure your illness, but I can't. Or a professor saying to you, I, I'd like to be able to tell you this, give you this next bit of information, and it's going to be on the test, but I can't tell you. You know, or your boss saying, listen, I... I, I I wish I could tell you, give you these tips on how to perform better at your job because you're going to be reviewed at the end of the year about these things, but, but, but I can't tell you. But what's at stake here is more than our health, more than a course, more than a job. It's about our eternal salvation. So you get this sense, you see, that there's this huge block about something that's very important. And he says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, but I, I, simply, I simply can't tell you this. And he says, notice, you've become, I can't tell you this, because you've become dull of hearing. And we ask, well, is that bad? To be dull of hearing? It doesn't sound very good, but is that really bad? And the answer is yes, because you see, what it does is that it keeps you from maturity. Notice in, verse, in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, saying there's this thing about you being dull of hearing that's causing you to, to not be able to go on to maturity. And he, he relates our spiritual lives to our physical lives. He says, you're like infants. Now, being an infant or being a child is not a bad thing if you are an infant or a child. But if you're 40, it's a bad thing. Right? And he's saying to them, you've been a Christian 
a long time, or at least long enough to be moving on to maturity. Uh, in fact, he's saying, uh, so much so you all should be teachers. Chapter 5, verse 12. He doesn't mean you should all be Sunday school teachers, or you should all lead Bible studies, but he said you, all of you should be at a point in your spiritual life, your life with Christ, where you could explain it, where you could tell people about it, where you could give counsel to others who are trying to live this life. And he says, you're, you're really not moving on to maturity as you should because you're dull of hearing and that's why I can't tell you all of this stuff that's really important for your eternal salvation because you're missing some steps here. You're not moving on to maturity. And I wonder, I wonder about how many folks come to church every Sunday with absolutely positively no expectation of becoming mature. Simply come week after week after week after week and leave here with no expectation that the center of my life, which is Christ, is going to grow in me in such a way that I'm going to mature in my faith. And that two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, fifty years from now, what I'll be is a maturing and mature believer in Christ. That I'll understand and be able to walk in the things of God. It's simply amazing to me how many times folks have been hanging around the church for a long time. And I wonder why. I wonder why we have no expectation of maturity, that maybe Christianity is just something that we tack on or, or something that's nice to do or something that should be a part of our life or we should go to church or those kinds of things. And I wonder why there's no expectation in this to mature. Certainly that isn't our attitude when we take a job. You, know, you take a job, you begin a career, you say, now I need to get better at this. I need to learn more about this. I need to grow in this because, because this is my career, this is my job. And, and if I don't, I'll get left behind and I won't make as much money as otherwise and all the implications of that. And so we have this sense, this anticipation when we start a career, I'm going to get better at this so that I can improve, so that I can grow, so that I can mature in this. But this, you see, this thing called Christianity, this thing called following Christ, is the very essence of our lives. And I wonder why it is that we must think that this, is, this maturity in Christ is just reserved for some spiritual saints. But he's saying to this whole group of people, you should be mature enough by now to be able to explain to people what it means to follow Christ. You should be mature enough by now to be able to help people along in their walk with Christ. And the question for each of us is, are we there? I mean, how long have we been after this? How long have we been around this? Can we do that? Is this true in the context of our own lives? And I wonder even what we're teaching. Our children, you know, what's our emphasis for our kids? Do we, do we place within our kids an expectation that they're going to grow to become wise in the things of God? Or are we more concerned that they learn American history as opposed to Old Testament history? Are we more concerned that they learn algebra rather than theology? Are we more concerned that they learn good common sense or godly wisdom? What's the emphasis that we place upon them? Are we more concerned that they make friends with their peers or friends with God? I mean, what's, what's, you know, if you, we ask our kids, it's a dangerous thing to do. What do you think, I think, as your parent, is the most important thing in your life? 
I wonder what they'd really say. You may have to get somebody else to ask them other than you because they know what to tell you, uh, probably. But you may need to get that information if you possibly can from somebody else. Or what do you think as you look at them? How is it that they'd respond to you in such a way? Where are they looking for your affirmation? In what areas? You say. What do you emphasize in the context? What do I emphasize with my own kids in the context of their lives, even our married children? What do I talk about when they call on the phone, when we go visit, when we see each other? What's the essence of our conversation? Do they know that what I really care about is how are they walking with Christ? I don't care that much about how big a house they live in or what kind of cars they have or, or their job satisfaction or any of that other than how it relates to their walk with Christ. That's really what I want to know. That's really how I want to engage them, you see. So I wonder. And I, so I just simply wonder and ask you about your own life. Is your anticipation that you're growing up in Christ that you're maturing in Him. That this is the important thing. It's the very wisdom of God. I'll never forget about 27, 8 years ago, as an adult, semi-adult, I know you're thinking, God, 28 years ago, He must have only been three. Uh, <laughs> but I remember a person telling me what I already knew, but I finally heard... And that is, I can grow up. I can grow up in the faith. I can become wise in the things of God. It was an amazing thing to begin then twisting my life and, and rearranging everything around it to know God and to become wise in His things. I'm still growing in that, as you know, as you see my lack of wisdom. It's still to be growing, to have the expectation that that's the very course of my life. That was the expectation here that the author of Hebrews has for them. That's the expectation that we read about in Scripture. For instance, in, in Matthew, in chapter 5, Jesus says this, verse 48, He says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that word perfect is the same word here. It's mature, complete, grown up. He says, this is the expectation. It isn't just a, a small thing that you're being called to as a believer in Christ. He's saying that they're to love their enemies the way that God loves His enemies and therefore you can be children of God. So he says, I want you to be like, like that. That's what we're aimed for. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and, and, and we have it in 1 Corinthians, his first letter, it's all about their maturity. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 and verse 6, he says this, Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom. He's saying there's a wisdom, you see, that's, that's for those who are maturing, those who are growing up. In fact, in chapter 3 of this book, he writes, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants. In Christ I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And he says, even now you're not ready for it. He says, you should be growing up. What I want you to do is just like a child starts out on milk, which is perfect for the child, I want you to grow up strong on that so that you can have solid food. I expect you uh, to, be, to be moving on. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in, in the book of Ephesians, as Paul writes that letter, he tells us that, that the church is all about this growing up. For instance, in Ephesians, and uh, 
in chapter 4, he writes this uh, to the church, beginning with verse 11. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, or mature, to be mature Christians. That's what all of this is all about. That's why God gave us the church, so we'd grow up, so we wouldn't remain infants. And so, if you're part of the church and not growing up, something is wrong. Just as if you have an infant and it doesn't grow, you take that baby to the doctor. Because you say, something's wrong. And if you're hanging around the church and you're not maturing, something, you see, is wrong. You should be maturing. You should be uh, doing just, just that. This is true. There are all the scripture, for instance, Paul describes his whole ministry as this. For instance, in Colossians in chapter 1, in verse uh, 28, he says, Him, that is Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what he's after. If you ask Paul, what are you doing? Why are you an apostle? What's your whole ministry about? And he would say, I'm trying to get people to grow up in Christ. So that at the end of the day, at least the end of his day, he can take all these people to whom he's been ministering and present them to God grown up. Isn't that your job as a parent? As my kids grow up and and go off to college and get married and leave and all those sorts of things. Uh, People say, well, what's that like? And I say, first of all, it's no surprise. I mean, that was the goal. That was the, perf- that was the whole deal. You know, you know, my little line, I got two down, one to go. This is, this is uh, moms cry when I say that. But, but, but this is, you know, it's not a surprise, you see, when they grow up. That's a good thing. That's the kind of thing that now you rejoice in as we talk to our adult children and listen to how they're processing life. That should bring joy, you see. And, and that's what Paul's saying. That's, that's what I'm after is... He, in ministry, I want to present these people mature in Christ. And if I don't, something's wrong. Because that's what should be happening. In fact, that's the, 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 the goal of God for us as he gives us trials, as he gives us difficult things. James chapter 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete that is mature, lacking in nothing. See, that's the goal even as difficult things come into your life. Why does God ordain trouble in the context of our lives? He does it to grow us up. Why? Because His goal for us is that we mature. So being dull of hearing, if you can come back and track with me from the book of Hebrews, being dull of hearing is a bad thing because it keeps us from maturing. The author of Hebrews is saying, I want to go on with you. I want to tell you more. I want to help you in the context of your eternal salvation. But I can't because you won't listen. You're dull of hearing. But there's something else as well as we move down chapter 6 in verse 4. We won't get to this this week. <clears throat> but he writes this. He says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened 
who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. He's saying to this, saying this to a group of people who are dull of hearing and not moving on to maturity. You get a sense that if we're not moving forward, we're moving backward. You get a sense if we're not maturing, we're immaturing. My spell checker said that's not a word, but you understand. We're, we're, we're losing, if you will, maturity. That's why Jesus, I think, one of the reasons, would say in Luke, don't turn to this, you won't get to a quick enough, chapter 8, in verse 18, Jesus said, take care then how you hear, or take care then how you listen. For the one who has, more will be given, and the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. He says, if you become dull of hearing, you begin to lose ground. It isn't that you stay still, it isn't that you plateau. And it may well be, it may well be, at the most dangerous place in the whole world for a person is to be in church and dull of hearing. Alright? It may be, I'll develop this a little next Sunday, but it may well be that the most dangerous place for a person to be is in church and dull of hearing. So what does this mean, this whole notion of being dull of hearing? Well, uh, some of your uh, versions have the word sluggish. Uh, some have the word slothful, which I really like. I like the word slothful. Because that, that sounds like it is. I like words that sound like it is. Uh, slothful. You know, it's like, whoa, that's horrible. You get all dirty, and it's messy, and you shouldn't be there. Because you're so lazy. Because you're, you're not listening. You're, you're sluggish in all of that. If you look in Hebrews, in chapter 6, in verse Verse 11 and 12, uh, we see how the author of Hebrews uses this word and, and compares it to its opposite, which can be helpful for our understanding. He says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's someone who's dull of hearing is someone who has no earnestness. Someone who simply doesn't care. To listen. Oh, there's noise going around, but it's elevator music or it's traffic. It's, it's all those kinds of things that we just sort of put out of our minds. We sort of know is there, but when asked about it later, we can't really identify any of the songs that we heard while we were shopping at Dylan's. But we know there was music being played because there always is, but we never really listen. It's like, it's like that Christmas music that is played, the Christmas carols that are played every Christmas time at Dylan's. It drives me crazy. I want to walk into the store and scream at everybody and say, listen to this! You know? And they're not. They're just buying eggs and stuff. It just drives me crazy. It's as if we're not singing about the Son of God. I just hate it. I want to go put on the Temptations or something. Don't put this on. I like the Temptations. Anyway, it's just my era. But, um, um, no spiritual overtones in that, by the way. But the, um, <laughs> other than the fact that I still like, you know, 1960s Motown. But the, um, um, but really, it's, it's that kind of thing. They're dull of hearing. There's no passion. There's no, no earnestness. And then notice how he uses the word hearing in chapter 4 of Hebrews. In verse 2, he says, 
For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard, or you could literally translate this, the message of their hearing, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. You see, a lack, a dullness of hearing means that there's no union between what we're being told, what we're listening to, and believing it. It just goes away. It just doesn't happen. And let me, let me do something that I don't do very often, and that is let, let me just delve just a little bit deep linguistically, okay? You know my little joke. When I was in seminary, I got to know a little Greek, and his name was Nick. He ran a delicatessen. But let me, and he really did it, but, but let, me, uh, let me just play a little bit with some Greek words. I won't give them to you because you won't remember them. But, uh, but to simply let you know that there is a relationship linguistically between the word hear in Greek and the word obey. They're of the same root. And there's a relationship in Greek, at least the Greek words that the author of Hebrews uses here, there's a relationship between the word unbelief and disobey. Now let me show you that in Scripture. Chapter 3. And verse 18. He says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, you would expect him to say they were unable to enter because of disobedience. If you looked at those two words in Greek and played all the way through to their roots, you'd find that they have the same root word. That disobedience could be translated unbelief and unbelief disobedience. Why? Because they're so related. Because we disobey because we don't believe. The word comes to us and God says do X and we go, nah, that's not true. So we don't do it. We simply don't believe it. And the same is true in the context of our hearing. As I said before in chapter 4 verse 2, for the good news came to us, but the message they heard they didn't, benef- didn't benefit them because it was not united to faith. So we see all these relationships. We even see it in English. I remember when I was a kid. Uh, my parents, at one point in my life, had a curfew of 11 o'clock. And when I would come in at, well, let's just say, oh, my children are here. Let's say when I came in at 2, um, they would often say, why don't you listen to us? Now, what they meant by that wasn't, why didn't you hear that we said 11? They knew I heard they said 11 with these things attached to my head. They knew I heard that. But when they used the word, why don't you listen to us, they mean, why didn't you believe us when we said 11? And why didn't you obey us when we said 11? Because all that, we know, even as we speak English, is wrapped up in our hearing and listening. And so when someone says, why don't you listen to me, or when your wife, guys, looks you in the face and says, listen to me, she doesn't mean just get it here in these ears. She means believe what I'm saying and really take it to heart. You know, follow it, what I'm saying here. And so that's the case, you see. And so lack of dullness of hearing means a dullness of belief, which is the result of a dullness of obedience. 
You see, our lack of hearing and believing isn't an intellectual problem. This isn't that hard intellectually. Yes, there's some difficult things theologically, but then we just use the word mystery and get around it. They say, well, God's big and blah, 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 boom. So we do an end run. That's all you need there. It's mystery. How many millions of times have you heard me say the mystery of the incarnation? Why do I say that? Because I don't understand how God can become man. Or the mystery of the Trinity. Or the mystery of God's election. Or the mystery of God's predestination. I, I don't know how he pulls all that off. He just does. There's a difference between him doing it and me understanding how he does that. He simply does it. At any one point in time, God is solving all these simultaneous equations. How does he do that? I don't know. That's a mystery. But, so they're complicated things. But the gospel, we could take a multiple choice test and pass it. It's a moral problem. We don't want to submit. We don't want to listen. When my parents said to me, Bill, be home at 11, it was like elevator music. Because I didn't want to hear it. Because I knew before I went out, I wasn't coming home at 11. And I didn't want that thought in my mind, I need to be home at 11. I'd have felt bad the whole night. Why should I let my parents ruin my whole night? Kids don't listen to that. But that's what's going on in my mind. I'm not listening. I'm not believing. Why? Because I don't have an intention in my brain to obey it at all. And that's the problem. So the people sitting in church, listening, but not. Listening, but with no desire to obey it. And that is the problem. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, I want to go on with you. I want to grow you up. But you don't want to. That's really, that's really the issue. You're not listening. You're dull of hearing. And if you're not moving on maturity, you're shrinking back. And there may come a time in the context of your life where you've so shrunken back, there's no getting back. Don't. And he's saying, don't, don't be there. Don't be there. You see, now, I really want to, to grow you up in all of this. Because you should be maturing. What's it mean to be maturing? Notice in verse 13 and 14. He says, for everyone who lives on milk, that is the immature one, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Therefore, the mature ones would be skilled in the word of righteousness. If, a, if an immature one is unskilled in the word of righteousness, then a mature one is skilled in the word of righteousness. That is, understands that life is all about righteousness. It's all about being right by God's standards. It's all about being right with God. Righteousness. And we understand, of course, as we hear the gospel, that we're not right with God. That we're unrighteous. So the word of righteousness comes to us as the word of Christ. It says, He is our righteousness. You're not, He is. He came to be for you what you're not, what you're incapable of. So we become skilled in that word of righteousness to trust that He is our righteousness. But not only that He gives us His righteousness, imputes it to us, but He also imparts it to us. That He changes us from the inside out. So then we begin to realize that we're also to walk in righteousness. We're also to obey. 
that it isn't just a matter of, of, of receiving the righteousness of Christ and then stay in a holding pattern until he returns. It's no, you receive the righteousness of Christ. So we're accepted by him. We're accepted by God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And then it's to work in us. They were to obey. And that desire is to grow. And then not only that, he says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature one is one who's come to a place of being able to discern good from evil. See, the foundation's already been laid. The, the milk has already been there. There's already been this foundation of, of repentance from dead works. I already know that. There's already been this uh, um, faith in God, this understanding. There's already this instruction about needing to be cleansed. There's all this instruction about the laying on of hands, about the need for the Holy Spirit in the context of our lives, about the resurrection from the dead, about eternal judgment, all that's been laid. And now he's saying, listen, you're to grow up in that. You're to be like a person that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans in chapter 12 and verse 2. He says this. He says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, There's to come a point in life as you're being transformed that you're able to discern the very will of God, what is really good. And you see, when I read that, it excites me. I think, really? Can that really happen in the context of my little life? That I could be so transformed over the course of time that ten years from now, I'll be better suited to discern the will of God. That I'll grow in God's wisdom, knowing that it's His wisdom and not mine, so it's not an arrogant thing. I'm growing in God's wisdom that I'll be able to discern that for my life, for my wife, for my children, in the context of my relationships. What a thing that would be. Could you imagine growing up to that? And so he's saying you need to listen with the intent to obey. Remember Jesus said, those of you who hear my words and put them into practice is like the wise man. Builds his house on a rock. So when trouble comes, you remain firm. But if you listen to my words and you don't do what I say, then you're like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when difficulties come, splat. Be wise. Don't be dull of hearing. Attach it to faith with the intention of doing. And then you grow up. So if that's the problem, this whole notion of being dull of hearing... What then uh, is the solution? Back to verse 14 in chapter 5. He says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, the way that we grow up to maturity is in our infancy stage of getting the milk, we really take that milk and grow on it. We practice it. Over and over and over again. How do you get good at anything? How do you grow up in anything? 
You practice it. So that's what he's saying. Your powers of discernment are trained by constant practice. And this isn't isn't a mystical thing. This is an understanding kind of thing. This is a growing up to maturity. And he says, what you need to do is take the basics that have been laid and as an infant, as a child, in your growing up stages as a believer in Christ, he's saying, take those and work them over and over again. If the basics are things like repentance from dead works, then as you grow in your faith, practice repentance. What does that mean? It means that you're very aware, very conscious of the law of God of what God requires, and very conscious of your own sin. And every single time that you see sin in the context of your life, you're to identify it and turn from it. Keep doing that over and over and over again. And you know what will happen? After doing that for some time, you'll be able to smell sin a mile away. But if you don't do that, sin will overtake you all the time. Because you see, when you're listening with an intent to do, and you listen and do, you learn. I had a friend who once, when I was in seminary, who was from Boston, and he lived, he said, grew up next to uh, uh, one of the trains. And I said, wasn't that noisy? He said, oh yeah, during the middle of the day that train would come through and shake the apartment and, and make all kinds of noise. Sometimes we have to stop talking to the person you're talking to. And I said, what about at night? He says, oh yeah, it went through at night as well. And I said, well, didn't that bother you? He says, no, not after a while. Why? Because he'd become dull of hearing. But the cure to dullness of hearing, if you want to get woken up by the train every night, you know what to do? The first time it wakes you up, get up and get a glass of water. You do that enough, every time that train comes through, you'll wake up. Because you've paid attention to it. You've done something in response to it. In fact, you'll start anticipating the train coming. I mean, you'll get thirsty about five minutes before the train shows up. And you'll wake up and not know why. And then the train will come through. That's the same kind of thing here. He says, all right, repentance from dead works is a basic kind of thing in the life of the Christian. So he says, listen. Listen. Watch. Know what God expects. And when you find sin in the context of your life, don't just ignore it. Don't just think everything's fine. Don't just cover over it. But consciously repent of that. You do that enough. That you start flipping channels and you'll, you'll avoid certain ones automatically because you know that's not a place to go. Because you've already repented so many times that you just won't go there. You repent enough times about things that you've said to hurt other people. And you've repented and you've gone to them and asked them to forgive you. That you won't say that anymore because... But if, if you just gloss those over, if you're the kind of person who just can insult someone or hurt somebody's feelings and, and walk away and it doesn't bother you, and even when you're confronted with it, it still doesn't bother you, you're going to end up be a, to be a person who uh, isn't very much fun to be around because you're going to be hurting everybody in your wake. But if you take time each time Early on in the context of life, uh, after a while, you'll be able to go, oh, I shouldn't say that. Now, if you're like everybody else, the growth process, you'll go, oh, I shouldn't say that. And then you'll say it. shouldn't tell you this, but... And then you'll say it. You'll do that a few times, and then you'll learn from that. You repent, you see. And over time, as you see these things, you'll begin growing in discernment. Faith in God. Basic, isn't it? 
to believe the promises of God. But how many times do we read the promises of God and we don't believe it? We go through trouble and we read the promise of God. There isn't a sparrow that falls from the heaven lest God ordains it. And somehow we just don't want to deal with that because our hurt is too great. And we won't let that promise infiltrate our lives. And so we don't grow. And the next time trouble comes, we feel like we're on our own again. We feel like that God really isn't sovereign, that God really doesn't care. And yet that promise is there. It's sticking to us. When we're in need, what about the promise that says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And, and you see, we need to take that promise and believe it and act upon it. Every time life gets tough, every time we seem to be deficient, and what we need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We need to take that promise and believe it and apply it in the times when we feel weakest, in the times we feel behind the eight ball. When Jesus says rejoice when you're persecuted. And when trouble comes, we need to rejoice and start that early on. Because if you start that early on, then as persecutions get worse in the context of your life, you grow up with that. You go, oh, that's all right. I can handle this because... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There isn't the sparrow that falls without his ordination. So if I fall, I know that God's behind it. I know that he'll give me every good thing because he didn't spare his son. You see, we begin to grow up in these things, in faith in God. Uh, these washings that are spoken about, difficult to understand. But we know we need to be cleansed, and so we grow up in our faith, knowing that it's only by the cleansing blood of Christ that we're washed. And the laying out of hands, whatever that means, could mean a number of different things in the context of Scripture. But at least this is the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came often by the laying on of hands. People were set apart for ministry by the laying on of hands. We understand that. And so we trust that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. We grew up realizing that there is going to be a resurrection, praise God, but a judgment as well, which sobers us and moves us on to tell people about Jesus. You see, all of these things, as they come to mind, as we learn them, we act upon them little by little. One author puts it like this. We grow up to maturity by drinking the milk that were given as babies. Those of us who have observed hungry infants know a couple of things. Number one, there ain't nobody happy when that baby wants milk <laughs> until that baby gets milk. Right? Everybody's made aware of the fact that this child wants milk and you can't help but think, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you see, we shouldn't be happy at all until we get it. And then, there's not a more satisfying look than the look of an infant's face when they're full. When they're satisfied. And so we need to drink this milk, the very promises of God, the very truth of God, even the very basic things of God, and be satisfied with them. To not want for anything else. And you know what will happen? That over the course of time, just like that little baby grows up, and you ask that little baby, how did you grow up? How did you get to be this big to this big to this big to this big? That child won't know exactly. Milk. All of a sudden, the milk, then it's Cheerios, then it's bologna sandwiches, at least in my case as a kid. I know that's not good for you. What should I say? Something on wheat bread, I'm sure. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Steak, chicken, all this stuff. So you begin to grow up. And you find yourself discerning. You're finding yourself in a business deal saying, I don't trust myself there. Well, that's not right to do. You find yourself in a relationship going, I, I shouldn't go there with you. 
We shouldn't go there. We shouldn't say that. We find ourselves uh, getting ready to go somewhere out and look at an outfit and say, I shouldn't wear that. That would be inappropriate. We go to buy a car and we say, well, how should I spend my money on this or that? We find ourselves discerning because we're no longer dull of hearing and we're no longer dull of hearing because we're taking what we listen to from the Word of God and applying it, believing it, and applying it in the context of our lives. Many have called communion uh, a covenant renewal. Uh, Covenants in history and in the Bible were very often uh, celebrated, signified by meals. God, in establishing the whole covenantal scene, both outside and inside of Israel, used covenants to do just that. And we have a covenant with God in Jesus, where Jesus agreed with his Father to come and die for those the Father had given him, for those who would believe in him. And as believers in Christ, we're in that covenant. And when we celebrate communion together, you know the words, do this in remembrance of me. It was that night that Jesus was betrayed and he took bread and after giving thanks, he he broke it. And he gave this bread to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. And in the same way, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now this morning as we come together, what What I want to ask is that this be for you and for me a covenant renewal meal. A time when I'm not thinking about who of you is dull of hearing, but I'm thinking of me and where I'm dull of hearing. Where have I been in that elevator and God speak by his word and I just sort of What are those places where I need to listen and join what I'm hearing with belief? This is really from God. This is really true. This is really righteousness. This is really best. This is really God's wisdom. And there is none other. And then, where can I take that which I'm hearing and believing and apply it? Do it. Step out. Whether it's repentance before God or with another, whether it's my faith increasing, trusting Him in areas where I I haven't, whether it's believing that He's my only source of purification, that I need the Spirit of God to work in me, that I trust and I won't fear death because I know a resurrection is coming, and yet I'll live soberly because I know judgment is coming, and I'll trust Christ. Where is it that you're hearing that you need to combine with faith and do. And use this time 
Because we believe Jesus is present here. This is bread and juice. We don't think it changes. So we don't, Jesus, we don't believe Jesus is here physically. But spiritually, he is. This is his meal. This is what he invites us to. And he says, I'll meet you there. I'll be there in a way, in a special way. Mystery again. I don't know how. But mystery, he says, come. And I'd like this to be for us this morning. That covenant renewal that says, okay, God. You're right, I'm wrong. Your word is true, mine isn't. Here's where I haven't been listening, believing, obeying. Forgive me. Speak for your servant ears. Let's pray. Father, even now I pray by your Spirit that you would speak to us individually, corporately, even as you set this table before us. Father, I know my heart to some degree and each of us knows our hearts. I pray you give us insight. We know where we don't obey. And we pray by your grace that you would enable us to confess, to repent, to desire to walk in a way that is pleasing to you, that enables us to follow Jesus. So I pray, Lord Jesus, you'd meet us here around this table in the mystery of this meal. That you would enable us to grow up. That you would increase our faith. That you would enable us to believe what you say that you would enable us to follow you. Father, I know we'll fail again, but, but I pray this would be a moment today that would help us along that way of maturing. That we would think, I'm no longer just going to show up at church and go home with no expectation of change, but I'm going to set my sights on growing up. Father, bless this meal. Take this bread and juice and use it in such a way that enables us to meet with Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in His sovereign mercy. And all those who believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus for their salvation, just as it is offered to us in the Gospel, that is freely because of the work of Christ who died for us, for our sins, and rose again and lives to intercede for us. And all those who desire to live in such a way that is consistent with professing faith in Jesus. If that's true of you, we invite you to come these two sections down this aisle to my left, these two sections down this aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, let me ask you to remember Jesus, that you might trust in him. Please come.